0: You are listening to Speaking of Europe, and today we're particularly speaking of Belarus. Unless you have decided to stay free from any media impulses in the last months, which I wouldn't blame you for doing, you probably have heard of the mass protests in that country. The regime of Belarus, sometimes coined Europe's last dictatorship, is facing massive pro-democratic protest movements all across the country and particularly in the capital city of Minsk. But what kind of country is Belarus really and why has Belarus not been able to democratize after the fall of communism? Why are people protesting now? Today we're going to attempt answering these questions with Xenia Beliakov. Good evening Mr. Beliakov.
1: Hello Nice, nice to meet you.
0: Nice to meet you too. You are a, a Russian born independent researcher of Belarus politics and history. By so introducing you the correct way,
1: yeah, well, there are many ways to introduce a person, but that's probably the best short way. So, I was born in Russia, um, and I think that during this podcast, I have to constantly be aware that I am from Russia because there is plenty of Russian citizens these days who are trying to interfere and to recommend to Belarusian people how they should live and manage their country. So I would um, I would try to be as objective and neutral as I can be, but you know, when you speak of something you have to remember of the position where you're coming from. So I'm not from Belarus, I worked a lot on Belarus with many Belarusian colleagues and um, I made extensive research on Belarus in terms of the human rights situation there and uh, and yeah, I closely follow these events, specifically what's happening now. I think it's extremely important for the not only for Belarus but for whole Europe.
0: Well, I think that's that's really good of you to. To clarify also that background of yours, I mean, our uh, backgrounds, Martin's and mine, um, being Spanish and Dutch, are also not detached from um, detached from, uh, um, unbiasedness. Western Europeans, we, we tend to think that everyone wants to be like us, and maybe that's actually also simplification. But I'm sure we are going to dive into that uh, later in this, uh, in this episode. But for now, e- the listeners um, at home, they can uh, hear the music on the background. And uh, as always, I'm going to ask this very rhetorical question to you, Martin. Martin, you want to ask me what we're listening to?
2: As I don't know what we're listening to yet again, I ask you, use what are we <laughs> listening to?
0: All right. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're asking. Well, We're, we're listening to the... 18th century Polonaise composed by uh, Ossip Kozlowski. He was born in what's today Eastern Belarus, but when I try to inform myself on Wikipedia, it doesn't become clear to me whether I should actually introduce him here as a Belarusian. I mean, according to the Belarusian Wikipedia, he definitely is a Belarus composer, but according to the Russian Wikipedia, he's clearly a Russian musician. And then on the Polish Wikipedia, it states that Kozlowski was beyond any doubt a Polish man. And I honestly have no idea what to make of of this. And here's what confuses me actually the most. Every time I want to find information about any Belarusian who was born before 1918, so the year when Belarus actually became a republic, I always stumble upon the same kind of chaotic and complex attempts to define the person's nationality. So actually my first question to you Mr Bayakov, what do you make of this are you surprised that it's so hard to uh, pinpoint the identity of uh, Belarusian people and to identify who is a Belarusian and who is uh, not mm-hmm.
1: well I don't think it's particularly surprising but I also don't think that it applies only to Belarusians I think it also you can find similar cases when it comes to Ukrainians Russians polish, just one example, I'll give you. I once worked in the archives when uh, the immigrants from Warsaw were coming to the United States in the early 20th century, and in the nationality, they were put in Russian. So apparently, their perception was that nationality means your country of citizenship, and since they were coming from the Russian Empire, they were put in. Russian there. But the same people 30 years later, when they were already naturalized in the United States, they were already putting their nationality as Polish, so they probably living in the United States, they kind of changed their perspective on identity. When it comes to Belarus, you know, the the borders of Belarus were changing and um, the state formations were very fluid throughout history. So this is really this land, Lithuania, Poland, Belarus, Ukraine, Russia, and all the multiple state form- formations that existed there. It's a very intermixed and it's yeah, it's very hard to sort of uh, through history to look at one stable identity. I remember another letter that uh, in the early 20th century, a guy living in Vilna, was writing to uh, to a local newspaper, and he was outraged that he is living in Vilna, in Vilnius, what is now the capital of Lithuania, and that he says that how come they want us to be called Lithuanians? We are not Lithuanians; we are Polish, and we will always be Polish. The funny thing is that the wow, guy was, the guy was writing letter in Lithuanian language, but insisting that he is Polish, and Belarus. Is a somewhat a very good example of this how identities are fluid because of course the the kind of the nation state in its contemporary form uh, emerged in nineteen eighteen but the cities of belarus the culture the language the religion existed for for almost a thousand years. the mm-hmm. very expression belarus white rus or white Lithuania I think first time it uh, was dated fifteenth sixteenth century depending on the um There are documents in different languages, but it goes back as early as 15th century. And uh, the language itself, Belarusian language, like Ukrainian and Russian, they all come from the old Slav language, the old East Slavic. And uh, it is true that Russian language was uh, sort of uh, developing uh, faster, like Russian national consciousness, simply because Russia was a bigger country and it was sort of dominating over other ethnicities. And there were periods, of course, when Belarusian language or nationhood was suppressed either by the Polish state or by the Russian state, but it nevertheless existed, even when it existed only in the kind of villages and the rural areas, it, uh, it was always there, and uh, it, in a surprising way, it was in 1918 when uh, for the first time it was emerged it was it disappeared officially and then it was part of the became part of the Soviet Union it's very ironic because the the Bolsheviks sort of created Belarus but they also destroyed it in it simultaneously they created it as a national republic and from yeah. 1918 from 1922, when Soviet Union was officially formed, basically Belarusian people had their own national borders within the Soviet Union. But then at the same time, all the constraints imposed by the Soviet regime, they came... The, so
0: so they, they institutionalized their nationality, but they took away the sovereignty with it.
1: They took away the sovereignty and they took away... Well, all the major decisions were made in Moscow, not in Minsk. So let's just for example in 1920s when soviet union was formed and when lenin was still alive there were of course many uh interesting experiments uh what i mean is the for one of these experiments was um, to actually kind of do the affirmative action towards the other nationalities in the soviet union so countries like ukraine or belarus they had very broad policies, they were allowed to develop local national cultures and languages. So Belarusian language in Belarus, like Ukrainian language in Ukraine, were very much favored and promoted in 1920s. Something That's that, like that, this communist ideal of a,
0: of a state of many nations, of many peoples, right?
1: Yeah, that was kind of the moment when Soviet Union was closest to its original idea, how it was supposed to be. And then, of course, very soon, already by late 20s, when Stalin sort of concentrated most of the power in his hands, these policies were reversed. But then again, after the Second World War, Belarus, together with Ukraine, were one of the founding members of the United Nations, for instance. So all the countries like Mm -hmm. U.S. or Britain, they had only one Representative in one voice at the UN. Soviet Union had three because Belarus and Ukraine was given additional kind of recognition by the international community, mostly because of their contribution to the defeat of the Nazis. But, uh, you know, but it was also important that Belarus was recognized as part of the, as one of the UN nations. But again, you know, during the Soviet years, after Stalin, the kind of uh, slow, not a forceful but slow russification was happening everywhere up until you know late 80s early 90s and today for Mm -hmm. instance belarus is one of those countries where maybe it's an exaggeration but belarusian language in belarus is like irish gaelic languages in in ireland It, it sort of exists there people speak it they know something but in terms of everyday usage it's almost it's it's extremely rare to hear it
0: so in practice they actually the uh, most Belarusian people speak Russian to one another
1: in everyday life so this here is a yeah. little trick because when uh, there are surveys conducted regarding their language so more than half people when asked what is your mother tongue they say that mother tongue is Belarusian however mm. when however when asked what is the language that you speak at home Most people say it's Russian. So there is a certain understanding that there is a certain mother tongue, but as some people almost jokingly say, you know, I don't speak my mother tongue. So this is happening Mm. in several (laughs) Soviet republics when people understand that they have the so-called prescribed mother tongue, but they actually can't speak it properly.
0: Right. And... I mean, maybe they have a bit of a Belarusian accent when they speak Russian. Is that like something that makes them feel at least different from from uh, it's, is it's not the There impact?
1: is a very slight uh, accent, but um, one of the one of the funny one of the not funny but um, peculiar things about Russian language is that is that as though it's spoken in so many places and countries, it almost it's almost the same. I think it's because of the yeah. Soviet centralization. Uh, there is mm. a slight kind of uh, Belarusian and Ukrainian accent which exists. But mm. uh, when I talk to people of my age and of my education in Minsk or Kiev, I can never say, I can hardly say if they are from Moscow or Kiev or Minsk.
0: Yeah, yeah. this is something I noticed myself. I lived myself in Moscow for a while. And uh, while well, my Russian is not that good, but it's good enough to survive. Um, <laughs> I I always notice that the difference between Russian accents is not regional, but, but it is actually class-based somehow, right? Like there there's there there is a difference in the way an educated Russian speaks very very much so compared to how uh, someone on a in a farmer's uh, village speaks to. This to is something that applies. Language. It
1: also applies to actually the what's happening in belarus so the what you said is kind of i think i would agree with this and the president of belarus alexander Lukashenko, for example when he speaks mm. russian he's doing this very specific kind of a style of like um almost like a peasant guy which is a very uh, ah, which is a very popular it's very populist it's very populist yeah, and he speaks like this you <laughs> know like good old uh Peasant guy from the village, and he talks to you like the guy that you want to just have a beer with, and he's specifically yeah. using these expressions and the intonations that uh, that make him feel like you know, like a simple, normal uh, guy from kind of a kind of lower class. Yeah, he doesn't speak like um, you know Putin, for example. Putin likes sometimes to kind of have this uh, very highbrow. He he knows how to play with these genres, and Lukashenko has a very. Mm kind of a very simple style that is very popular in Belarus. I mean, at least it was popular until the recent years.
0: <laughs> Let's fast forward to the late 1980s, to early 90s, when when the Soviet Union fell. All the former communist countries in Europe started to democratize. Some tried but failed, like, like Russia. Uh, but um, the Belarus government seemed to not even have Attempted to democratize. So, so, my question to you would be: What, what actually went wrong in Minsk in the nineties?
1: uh this is yeah. I can talk for hours about it because it's actually a very, very complicated and interesting topic. And I think there are many misconceptions about this period in the West, but also mm-hmm. in inside of Belarus and Russia. When you know, the Soviet Union collapsed. It wasn't really the same as the collapse of the communist regimes in Poland or Czechoslovakia, because the vast majority of people in Eastern Europe, like here in Hungary where I am, they definitely supported the collapse and the transition and they basically hated these regimes. In the Soviet Mm -hmm. Union, it was much more complicated. And if you look in not only Belarus, you look into Ukraine, just uh, the opinion poll just 10 years ago in 2010, the last one that I saw in Ukraine showed that majority of Ukrainians still regret the collapse of the Soviet Union because the demands for reforms and change in the Soviet Union were not really, uh, and democratization, they did not really uh, want this collapse of a state as such, collapse into little pieces and including the economic social collapse and everything that followed. So mm-hmm. actually what happened in Belarus was very I think looking back is very logical. When Ukraine and Russia, when the economies collapsed, the state collapsed and was run by criminal gangs and oligarchs, and there was a rapid privatization of um, of economy something that was never voted or approved by by the voters in belarus Lukashenko probably made a smart move at that time he decided he he, uh, he felt what the what is the popular sort of desire and he decided to restore even though kind of partly this sort of semi-soviet regime so when he came to power he took economy under control which helped to, well, not to save the economy, but at least to make it easier for people to transit from communism to kind of different form of uh, governance. In Belarus still there is no massive gap between rich and poor, like in Russia or Ukraine. There is no such a class as oligarchy in Belarus, and um, generally the economy, after three years of collapse, started to recover. In Russia the economy was falling freely for ten years non-stop. So Lukashenko felt that there is another way to make these changes, to make these reforms. And they, even the symbols that he's using, he partly restored the slightly amended Soviet symbols. That was because there was a popular demand at that time. I know that today many people and my my kind of colleagues would argue that no, nobody wanted Soviet Union. But Back then, in 1990s, there were several generations of people who lived in that regime. It was seen as such a natural kind of thing. So for, uh, for many people uh, who lived and who gave an oath to Soviet Union, many of them went to serve in the army and they gave oath to the <coughs> Soviet Union. So for them it was their kind of country and there was a very slow realization of that the country is not going to come back. Now, 20 years after, of course, it's a different generation. They don't have any nostalgia for the Soviet Union. They don't remember it. But back then, that was a very sort of popular demand, and Lukashenko felt it. And in a way, I think that's why Belarus was always given as an example of this stable dictatorship. Unlike Russia or other dictatorships in in Central Asia, he actually enjoyed the widespread support, at least significant support back in 1990s something that didn't have let's say in russia because yeltsin was always on the on the edge of being ousted can i make a question Uh,
2: yeah sure um because it's it's interesting what you're mentioning because usually the the general theory modernization theory of democracy says When countries develop, automatically they start to seek democracy. And this is uh, something that has been observed and studied, etc. In this case, we have uh, the opposite from what you're describing. We have a country that has developed a lot um, economically in the sense that apparently GDP per capita has increased threefold since 1995. There is um, higher life expectancy, there is a, a more years of education. And this has consolidated until now Lukashenko's regime instead of uh, provoking contestation. Or how do you see that?
1: Well, first of all, theory is not entirely wrong because what we see right now is this, this protest. They actually show that even though <clears throat> uh, even though economy... I would say it's doing quite good. I mean, Belarus is not an impoverished state, and it's been it's been developing. And uh, th- there is a popular dissatisfaction with uh, with uh, Lukashenko. But then also this, I mean, there are different factors like modernization theory. I kind of. I'm quite critical of the basic tenets of it. Like, it doesn't take, for example, into account the collective trauma that people experienced and that might be guiding them. What happened in, first of all, there is the trauma of both fascism and Stalinism, from which probably nobody suffered as much as Belarusian people. And then the disastrous collapse of the Soviet Union, that sort of, not only in Belarus, but in several Soviet republics that was like a vaccine against drastic changes so there was such a feeling of um, kind of existential anxiety about everything and the kind of and real fear of change that by the 1990s even um, even sort of you know in intellectual educated people who are constant demand for change constantly love to demand uh, Change. They were rather focused on how to provide sort of a security, stability, and some sort of normalization of the of uh, you know of the political system. There was, as I said, there was an example of Russia where in 1993 almost mm-hmm. the civil war broke out when Yeltsin and Parliament were shooting each other. And um, so, on the one hand, I understand why there was a demand for this political instability in Belarus, despite the fact that the economy was getting better. But then, at the end of the day, look. What's happening right now? That actually proves that, yeah, there there is a certain bifurcation point after which, after which, um, you know, people start to demand changes uh, not because they are impoverished or hungry, but because they want more and they're just tired of. Uh... As in in Belarus, they call it. I've heard it several times. They call it an ethical revolution. Revolution of ethics. So it has to do. It's, mm. it's not so much with economic demands. It's more of exactly with this desire for more um, democracy mm. and freedom.
2: And and what do you what do you think about this mixture of de- from the outside democratic elements and authoritarian elements? Because there have been elections going on in Belarus for some time, and um, these elections are, from what is uh, uh, said, is that they are biased and they are, there is not an even playing field. So. There is uh, repression. There is um, um, all kinds of uh, p- political prisoners, etc. Yeah. And so, w- why, in the first place, would he, um, let's say, a- allow these elections? Because they can turn against him at some point, at the- as it happened now. Is it a way to to gain some kind of idea, or or, or to, to transmit some idea of democracy? Or how do you? What do you think?
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, you're right. Uh, this is a uh... It is not a unique thing for Lukashenko regime. I mean, we are living in 21st century, where most of the autocracies, authoritarian regimes, they have to keep the facade of democracy. Look at Venezuela, look at Russia. Look at—I um, uh, mean, there are ma- many, many examples. Uh, this is not, mm. um, you know, kind of totalitarian regime like the Soviet, for example, where um, even in the Soviet Union there were elections, although they were like a very peculiar kind of elections. But here you need to have—you elect- need to have a multi-candidate elections, but it's controlled. So in these elections are set up in a way that. Alternative candidates cannot win. However, what happens is that sometimes sometimes we overestimate the power of these dictators. So you all know, I guess, the example when um, Augusto Pinochet, when his referendum failed and he, he wasn't allowed to uh, continue uh, in 1988, I think, that was the referendum. I think he was very surprised when it happened. But there was a kind of mass mobilization that turned against him. Same right now. Happens in happened in Belarus because the elections that he felt he's he's in charge and he's in control. Suddenly he so, he just simply didn't understand that society changes. That just because he's mm. showing propaganda on TV like they do it also in Russia, that doesn't mean that you mm. can do it forever. Because there are so many different factors that it affect the society, and these regimes. They probably think they are very smart, but it, like it always turns out that they cannot control everything. It's, nobody can control everything. It's impossible. I mean look at the just just an example like look at the I always tell my friends, look at the communist regimes all over Eastern Europe. They had such a good system of control, spies, propaganda and this was perfectly modeled if you think about it to, to to last forever and then at one moment they just boom and collapsed within several days yeah because yeah. they couldn't they couldn't uh, control because it's impossible
0: a bit more on that uh, democratic question in uh, Belarus sometimes I, I have the feeling that especially in Western Europe we we overestimate uh, the democratic demand of these protests do you think that I don't know how, how to phrase it like aren't the people of Belarus just asking for a better economic Situation rather than uh, democratic reforms.
1: No, no, I think it's the contrary. In this particular case, the democrat. The, I was when the protests started and I um, started to pay specific attention to basically every day to what's happening, the debates, the, the slogans, mm-hmm. the, and I was so surprised by how mature actually the protest movement in Belarus is. I mean, I was aware that there is a strong opposition movement in the country before. But it looks like it's very um, mature in a sense that people understand that if there is a political change, probably it's gonna it's gonna be it's gonna have a negative impact on the economy, and probably it will take right. years to kind of to kind of recover. But people, it looks like people are ready to pay this price. It's very they're fed so- up. They're fed up. And it's very surprising here. I don't mean to be offensive to any of my Ukrainian colleagues. But one of the things about the last revolution in Ukraine was that there was some sort of, a, well, maybe some sort of naive feeling that, that that somehow getting closer to European Union will somehow solve the problems. and probably, a more
0: utopian feeling, maybe.
1: I don't want to say utopian because there were, again, a lot of very, very smart and bright people in Ukraine who were protesting. But there was, unfortunately some segment of society that really believe that it's somehow going to solve the problems and yeah, that EU is going to somehow come and help. In Belarus, I don't see it at all. First of all, you don't see right. anyone waving European Union flags. People are waving just Belarusian flags, which I think is very important. So it's it's not that they're trying to sort of appeal to European Union to come and save them, but rather they're relying on their own... You know their own strengths and I think that also they understand that there will be a price to pay for this but then as you said you know people fed up so
0: yeah Martin you you did some interesting research on uh, on the EU Belarus relations for this episode Um what is it in, in your eyes that makes Belarus a special country from the perspective of Brussels and yeah particularly maybe in this context that we just spoke about also different from Ukraine
2: well um at least in the last 25 years, the European Union's relationship with Belarus is defined by its ups and downs, usually gravitating around issues of human rights violations and democratization. And mm. for example, just to give you a, a short timeline, there have, there have been several informal partnerships. For example, in 1995, they agreed on a partnership and cooperation agreement to foster economic and political development. And this partnership uh, partnership was terminated in um, 1997 due to repression of the opposition, the independent Mm. media. And then again, in 2002, we have another partnership where Belarus is included in the European neighborhood policy, conditional to development of democratic form of government. And Mm. this period lasted a bit longer because Supposedly in 2008 to 2010, there was a release of political prisoners. And as a consequence, the European Union reduced the sanctions and admitted Belarus to the Eastern Partnership. There was as well some geopolitical interests of the European Union at this point, because Mm -hmm. Lukashenko refused to recognize uh, separatist Georgian territories of South Ossetia after the R- Russian-Georgian war, and this mm-hmm. kind of um, led the European Union to soften the stance towards um, Belarus. And um, yet again, um, this agreement was broken in 2010 after the presiden- presidential elections um, where, um, had, where the, vi- the opposition was viol- violently um, oppressed, repressed. And again, in 2014, for example, we have another attempt of normalization because um, Belarus has a neutral position towards Ukraine and supports the country's territorial integrity. And this led, um, again, to the release of some political prisoners and elections in 2015, which were supposedly free from violence. And since then, we have um, as well some investment from the European Union in the form of support for the private sector and small and medium enterprises. But the numbers are not very big. We, we are talking about 500 million euros since 2016. And lastly, what we have is from the 2nd of October, we have now official sanctions um, on the basis of not recognizing the uh, presidential elections, the outcome of the presidential elections. And these um, sanctions are taking the form of travel bans and asset freeze of certain political uh, officials. And what we see overall, I'd say, and I, and I want to ask you is, um, well, we see, a, let's say, a, a, a process that is familiar to Europe because it has already reacted to domestic repression in Belarus. But at the same time, the problem seems that the European Union doesn't have a policy toolbox, doesn't know how to re- how to answer. And so they sign informal agreements that do not last. And um, the question would be, is there a way for the European Union to actually effectively tackle um, domestic uh, political repression in Belarus?
1: Yeah, that's, uh, you know, th- there's another joke you might know, the joke about the European Union and the deep concerns that it always expresses about uh, whatever happens. Uh, So yeah, European Union again expressed uh, deep concerns regarding the situation in Belarus this this time, and this is not the first time. And um, Lukashenko was trying to play this game between Moscow and Brussels for many years. And uh, every time that Lukashenko needs to wants closer ties with European Union, he would release some political prisoners or would make some kind of lib- like slight liberalization, although very temporary. And um, at the end of the day, I think there is very little that European Union can do. I mean, if there are sanctions against Lukashenko, I think it's still a good the good thing to do, even if there is a very limited uh, impact. But there needs to be some sort of a joint uh, <clears throat> position um, on, on what's happening. But I think that it's more uh, what's hap- the, the real change in Belarus can be brought. There are two there is people of Belarus and there is Vladimir Putin in Moscow. These are the kind of uh, the factors that are very important. And unfortunately, yeah, Vladimir Putin and the position of Kremlin... I think plays a big role because Lukashenko very much dependent on Putin. Economy, Mm. military, uh, it's, um, yeah, probably no other country depends on Russia as much as, as Belarus. And when I say that Belarus depends on Russia, I mean, particularly Lukashenko regime depends on Putin. Without Putin's support, I don't think Lukashenko can last long.
0: Hmm. To dive a bit back into that EU-Belarus relation, when I'm listening uh, to you, Martin, when I'm reading some texts about it, it, it seems to me that the EU-Belarus relations can really be divided into two periods. Before Ukraine, it was very much focused on the normative dimension and the European Union was only talking with Belarus as long as the Belarusian uh, regime was willing to democratize or liberalize uh, by one way or another and after the Ukraine crisis the European Union uh, took a more geopolitical um, attitude and actually just started to defend its own interests in uh, Europe and didn't uh, stopped caring less at least about the democratic deficits in Belarus Seeing that, and my question to you, uh, Mr. Yaakov, is how do you explain that uh, the European Union actually, when it stopped really explicitly pushing for democratization in Belarus, Belarus actually started to become more open for democratization, at least its society. Uh, Doesn't that say that the European Union um, um, has a negative impact on democracies when it tries to democratize uh, neighboring countries
1: <laughs> you know it's uh, yeah it's a very tricky question but I really like it and um, you know it's, a, it's an ongoing debate for for many years and there was a uh, just to give one example there was a, there was when the protest started in August there was the special EU I forget what was it the European Union Commission or it was it the uh, any other body within EU, but they established a fund to help opposition in Belarus, and there was a statement mm-hmm. by the coordinate the Council of Belarus Opposition. They explicitly said, please, we don't want European Union funds to help us, because it's going to only hurt us. I thought this was so funny, mm-hmm. because basically they said, thank you, but please don't, don't help us. <laughs> and I thought that yeah. this is hilarious, but I was very happy and even proud of uh, of that statement, because, yeah, sometimes it can be the, the opposite, this kind of help can lead to uh, uh, the opposite results, because uh, for the regime it's very easy to discredit the movement, and to accuse them of being, of work, working for the, you know, for foreigners, if there is a foreign-funded in, in, involved. And, um, you know, as somebody who worked in the human rights sector for for a little bit, at least I am familiar with that, unfortunately, it happens that donors those who provide funding and those who think they provide support sometimes have such a superficial knowledge of the situation on the grounds. And sometimes Mm. they work through established channels. For example, there are multiple kind of well-known, famous activists on post-Soviet space who receive constant support from the West, but very often those activists completely lack legitimacy on the grounds, or they use such old, outdated methods that they simply do not, there is zero, zero, zero impact to do it. This time, for example, one of the huge Successes of the Belarusian movement was uh, that the technologies that they used. There is a application called Telegram, and there is a, t- a channel on Telegram called Nechta, which was kind of central to mobilize this. I don't think anyone in the <clears throat> European Union could come up with this idea because, I mean, I don't mean to offend European Union, but unfortunately, the way the cha- like the way when they change the strategy, it takes such so long, and uh, this Telegram channel. Uh, it was necessary to do it as soon as like very fast very dynamic and you know it will take years until supporting the telegram channels will be part of the strategy of european union in eastern europe yeah. you know? it's a, it's
2: in a way what you're describing is that um, the democratic movement is a bottom up movement right so that the that european union from the outside actually the best stance is to to keep away and not do anything except for example the sanctions you're referring to but if it's a bottom up movement self organized then what what can an institution do
1: well, I, look i i can't name a single example in history when the democratic movement from top down would work it always it's it's if it goes top down it usually collapses after after that because it's not la- going to last long all the genuine democratic movements that bring real change They start from bottom and then they go up. And the EU EU always, not always, but often has this kind of desire to do the top-down approach. And uh, yeah, that's...
0: What about, for instance, uh, when I think of top-down democratization and and successful forms of that, I always uh, think of Japan after the Second World War. I mean, that was a somehow Mm. successful uh, experiment. Uh,
1: Well, you can... Yeah, look, Japan and Germany... Uh, you can also say that Germany was uh, top-down, but th- these are like very right. extreme cases, both Japan from and... The
0: and... Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, from the American side. Yeah, from the American side, yeah. That's a very important <laughs> correction. Um <laughs> Well, the Soviets were also thinking that they are democratized well, they were saying that they were doing democratization of Germany in their own way. but what happened in Japan and Germany is very extreme. These countries basically lost the war, they were defeated, they were occupied completely so they, I don't even i don't think I'm qualified to judge, but when you live in a country that is completely defeated and occupied, probably mm. there is everything you like in that such country, I think you can do um mm. anything. You won't. Although I can imagine that um, you know there might be some revanchist movements in in such case. Although yeah, in Germany and Japan it worked. But these are very very kind of extreme examples.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it m- maybe it's a bit of an unfortunate thing that those two situations, Japan and and, and Germany, kind of formed our our democratic worldview after the Second World War. So we 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 can't oh, yeah. oh, believe might be that we the, could the, repeat that.
1: the bias of the yeah that the. Because it was a success, maybe it kind of influenced it. But but that, yeah. but if you look into other, if you look into what happened after the Second World War with the Eastern Europe, with South America, with the former Soviet states, everywhere where with it Vietnam. worked with Vietnam, with yeah. Vietnam, yeah, it worked only when it's bottom from going from bottom, more grassroots, and uh, and Belarus is a good example of that. So do
0: you have hope for this uh, movement to? Uh, uh, get stronger.
1: I am a hundred percent confident that it will win. I just cannot predict when it will win. So it looks like Lukashenko is not going to leave, but he is ready to make concessions, and I think that he mm-hmm. will have to do concessions all the time from now on. So he cannot, he can't do it the way he was doing before. He can't just uh, crack down and arrest because the the movement is too massive, and he um, there's a certain point after which it's in the air, sort of like a zeitgeist when you feel that he lost legitimacy. So Mm. before there was a certain, there were still questions that, well, he still was supported by a significant part of the population, even though the elections were under question. This time, uh, it's like, yeah, it's like exactly like in 1989 in Eastern Europe. There is a feeling like, you know, this is it. It's just that uh, he can keep stick to power with help of these uh, Oman and police force, but for how long it cannot last long.
2: M-
0: Martin, you still had uh, one question. Yeah,
2: I, I, I have a question because I, th- I find a very, very difficult Russian's position toward the Belarus conflict. Russians conflict meaning Putin's position. Because on the one hand, um, there is, as you say, the, the democratic movement is massive. So b- b- sustaining Lukashenko would can be a very counterproductive thing to do yeah, in the yeah, sense yeah. that you're sustaining something that goes against the the majoritarian will of the population. And you have to also maintain a certain reputation in a country where people talk majoritarily Russian and they have a, a, a close relationship with Russian, at least from a cultural point of view. So what is actually... Putin's best position from to your eyes.
1: Yeah, that's another thing that I can talk about for hours because there's a lot of sort of nuances here. First of all, I don't know why, but there is a con- concept in the, especially in the Western media that Putin is so intelligent and smart and he has the super agency when he's in charge <laughs> and can predict everything, etc. etc. Which is a bit of a nonsense. Just look at exactly what you said that he's going against the will of majority of the Belarusians when he supports Lukashenko. If he wants Belarus to be part to be friendly to Russia or to be part of Russian sphere of influence or whatever, doesn't it make sense to support the majority of people and then actually to make sure that Belarus will remain friendly to Russia? But I mean, look at Venezuela, look at Ukraine. In Venezuela and in Ukraine, Putin supported. dictator who already lost well a a support of significant part of population wouldn't it make sense in case of venezuela or ukraine at least to take a neutral position but no they he threw all the support behind one candidate who was hated by a significant part of the of the of the country and then if there is a regime change in venezuela and we have regime change in ukraine russia completely lost ukraine and probably will lose uh, Venezuela. Is it a smart policy? No, it's not. And uh, when it comes to Belarus, I also think it's, even if you think in a very cynical geopolitical kind of terms, it's it's quite silly and stupid. Having said that, I don't really know what is Putin really contemplating and thinking right now. He showed the readiness to support Lukashenko, but it was a very carefully worded support. And uh, it's quite clear that Putin doesn't really, is not really a big fan of Lukashenko either. Hmm. I mean, Putin always wanted bigger integration and more cooperation from Lukashenko's side, and Lukashenko is, you know, always trying to play this game between EU and Russia. So... I think uh, Putin doesn't like Lukashenko. Belarusian people don't like Lukashenko. European Union doesn't like Lukashenko. But somehow, you know, he remains in power because he he knows how to play against all of these actors. We'll see. I think yeah. it, the situation is changing. Even though it's, there is less media coverage right now of Belarus, but it's changing every day. And I think the position of Russia and Putin will change depending on what's happening in. Belarus, but again the primary the primary actors here are the Belarusian people and the protest movement because basically they are control they, you know the keys are in their arms because they aren't like everybody else just reacts to the to, to what the movement is doing and I wish them really that they will continue uh, as long as they can because they really you know they, they got this momentum that they never had before in the history
0: well yeah that's a I think a very good way to end this episode. Mr. Beliakov, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it was um, a pleasure
1: talking to you guys.
0: Likewise, and I hear a lot about Belarus, so I wish you and also our Belarusian listeners all strength and health in these uncertain times, also for actual other uncertain regions in Europe like right now Azerbaijan and uh, Armenia. Martin once again, thank you thank you for uh, diving into the boring dossiers of uh, Brussels politics. I learned a lot from it. <laughs> and to everyone else listening, don't forget to leave a comment on YouTube or hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. And tonight I'm going to dream about the Belarusian lakes while listening to my favorite Belarusian, Russian, Polish or whatever composer, Osip kaslowski Thank you.